You're listening to Double Edged Sword, the podcast channel of Pastor Kilgo, where we dig into the Holy Scriptures to be instructed in the truth, to stand in the light, and have eternal life. May you be richly blessed by the Lord and His Word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, this, the first of his miracles, he did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. On this, the second week after the epiphany of our Lord, we get this fantastic account of the first miracle of our Lord, the changing of the water into wine, which ends up bringing with it a number of surprises along the way. Now, the first surprise is that this is not what we would expect the first miracle to be. If you know nothing about the Gospels and you're coming into it and you get this, that this is the first miracle that Jesus does, you would have a number of other options in your mind. You might have, for example, the the various healing miracles where he heals the blind or the mute or the deaf or the lame. Uh, that, That would make sense to be one of the first miracles to manifest his glory. Or maybe it would be the raising of the dead, like he does with uh, Jairus's daughter or the widow named son or Lazarus. That would make sense. Or maybe it's his own great miracles. Remember, Jesus gives us two chief miracles, two chief signs that he will give to the people of Israel. One is just as Moses raises up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. That is his crucifixion. That is one of his great signs. The other is just as Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then arise his resurrection. These are his two great miracles, his death for the sins of humanity and his resurrection for the justification of all men. Why, after all, wouldn't Jesus, immediately after his baptism, just get straight to the point and get everything done with already? Well, this actually moves us into the second surprise. We're surprised that this is the first miracle, but the the surprise that comes right on the heels of that is that this miracle ends up pointing us to the love of God for his creation in a really marvelous sort of way. The Lord loves his creation so much, in fact, that he's not going to just interact with us in these grandiose sort of ways. We tend to usually think about the Lord interacting with his creation through things like the pillar of fire on Mount Sinai or through the flood or uh, through the plagues of Egypt or these kind of grandiose sort of things, his transfiguration, his baptism, his death, his resurrection. We kind of forget some of the other stuff in between. And even with that, we forget that the, the Gospels are covering roughly three years of time, and in that three years, it doesn't record a whole lot of time that Jesus is out performing his miracles. The majority of what he's doing is wandering around and teaching and preaching. Uh, that's his chief work, it seems. The, the Lord loves us enough to deal with us in great ways, but also in small ways. And we can see this, for example, in the way that he teaches us to pray to him. We pray for the great things, for the forgiveness of our sins and for his kingdom, for his name to be holy among us. But we also pray for all the little things, our daily bread. You remember what, how, how Luther teaches us to uh, think about this, all the things that are in here, food, 
drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors. And now there's some of these that we might consider to be kind of bigger deals, some more grandiose sort of things, but most of them we don't even realize they're there unless they go missing. These would be things like good weather or food or good friends. We, we, we take these sorts of things for granted until they're not there. And then we realize what a great gift they actually are to us from the Lord. But the Lord is actually interacting with us in even these minute ways. And there's a guiding phrase that Luther gives us at the beginning, which ends up uh, being rather important. He says, everything that has to do with this body, with the support of the and needs of the body. So if it's needed for the support of you being alive, it's something that the Lord is giving to you as part of your daily bread. He's interacting with you and the rest of his creation in all those little things, regardless of how small it might seem. That the Lord is concerned with every aspect of our lives, no matter how small or trivial we might think those things are. And we see this at the wedding at Cana. This is one of the things that makes it so marvelous. That the Lord is at this wedding that he's been invited to, which should strike us immediately. He's just there as a guest. He's not there as the preacher. He's not there as the master of the feast. He's just a guest at somebody's wedding in, in Cana. And the wine has run out. And so the Lord, in his mercy and in his kindness, and because he loves his creation, makes more wine for the wedding. Now, now, if you don't know this about the Jewish wedding festivals, they would run for about seven days. And so it's a little bit fuzzy exactly the order of everything, but you would have somewhere in there, you would actually have the marriage rite itself. And basically everything else around that for seven days is a party. That's how they did that. Maybe we ought to go back to conducting our own weddings the same. Um, but when he, when he does this, he, he turns these stone water jars uh, they're for the purification rituals into wine. And, and it's a lot. If, if you, it tells us exactly how many jars there are. And we know that they're between 20 and 30 gallons a piece. It tells us that as well. If you do the calculations on that, converting it to the size of a bottle of wine, you get about 700 bottles of wine out of this. He, may, he makes a lot. And it's the best of wines. Uh, the, the master of the feast is astounded by how good the wine is. And so he goes up to the bridegroom and kind of rebukes him for saving the best for the, for the last, saving the, the good wine for when the taste buds are deadened and you can't taste it any longer. Uh, th this, by the way, is maybe an argument for having good wine in general. But the Lord cares about his creation so much that he comes along and he cares about this particular bride and groom. And uh, whether they would be embarrassed about running out of wine. And he cares about this particular wedding and these particular guests and this particular master of the feast and his reputation that's on the line here. And he cares about the joy and the feast of these particular people. And he does so with us as well. He's concerned with every moment of every part of our lives. But we, we're not yet to the biggest surprise the biggest surprise here is a little bit more hidden. It's not the nature of the first miracle, and it's not even the Lord's love for all the minute details of our lives. It's a surprise in that it shows us how the Lord changes for good everything that he touches, everything that he interacts with. I'm going to play a little game here. I'm going to read you uh, out of a few of the rites, and I want you to see if you can figure out what the common theme is 
behind these. So this is from the baptismal rite. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood, yet according to your great mercy, you promised belief... You preserved, believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, yet led your people Israel through the water on dry ground, foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. Okay, so that's the first one. The next one is from the marriage rite. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and before his church to witness the union of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. This is an honorable estate instituted and blessed by God in paradise before humanities fall into sin. In marriage, we see a picture of the communion between Christ and his bride, the church. Our Lord blessed and honored marriage with his presence and first miracle at Cana and Galilee. This estate is also commended to us by the Apostle Paul as good and honorable. And then we have the rite of the blessing of the grave at, a, at, uh, at the graveside, where we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, by your three-day rest in the tomb, you hallowed the graves of all who believe in you, promising resurrection to our mortal bodies. Bless this grave that the body of our brother or sister may sleep here in peace until you awaken them to glory, when they will see you face to face and know the splendor of the eternal God. Now, this is what we have in our rites. There's actually, if you go into the Norwegian Synod, they have another one. Uh, it's the prayer for uh, Christian education. And in there, they reference the boy Jesus in the temple. So are you catching the theme behind these? It's, it's a really a marvelous thing that we've brought into our rites, that we see how the Lord touches every part of our lives through his own, and he makes those things holy. We have that in baptism. In the example of our Lord's baptism, we have that in marriage, at the example of his blessing, uh, the wedding at Cana. We have that uh, in education with the boy Jesus in the, in the temple. And we have that in our own death where the Lord himself goes into the grave. Now, this is distinct from how the devil operates. And we, we should think about this for a minute. The devil cannot create. The devil does not have creative power. Only the Lord himself has that. And because of that, he can only destroy. In fact, this is what Jesus says of him, and that this is his primary work. Jesus says that the devil comes only to steal and kill and destroy, that he is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, that when he speaks, he breathes out lies, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil, because he cannot create and because he hates every part of the Lord's creation, seeks then to tear down, to destroy all the parts of the Lord's creation, all these gifts that the Lord gives to us. And the devil especially likes to, to attack the institutions of the Lord, the things that God has set up in our lives to be for our good and to be pillars within our lives. These would be especially the three estates of the church and the family and society. And we can see, if we look at it, how the devil attacks all of these in order to tear them down and bring them to nothing. But the devil, because he hates you and because he hates the church and because he hates Jesus, he does everything that he can to tear down not only institutions, but every single thing. All the small gifts that the devil wants you to be displeased if you have just, you know, a cup of ramen to, to eat for dinner because it's, it's not enough. 
Uh, the devil wants you to be displeased with the, the medium gifts. Maybe your uh, your car isn't exactly the right car that you want. So we experience this dissatisfaction with that. It, the large gifts where we end up being dissatisfied with our own families and this sort of thing. And even the gift of God himself, that we become displeased with God and his work and his gifts to us, that it's not enough, that what the Lord gives to us is, is inadequate for us. This is the devil's attack. The devil wants to come along and destroy faith. And so he attacks all these things and he attacks especially the Lord and his word. But the Lord knows that in the cross, faith is strengthened and not weakened. And that's why he goes there for us. Now, the devil, ironically, when he seeks to finalize this work of destruction and destroy the Lord Jesus himself, brings about his own destruction. That's worth thinking about. But all the while, in the midst of that, the Lord continues to be faithful, preaching and teaching and healing and blessing. And he continues in the meantime also to bless all the events of our lives. And so he submits himself to learn in the temple and from his parents, and he blesses our own learning throughout our entire lives. He submits himself to be baptized by John in the uh, in the wilderness for us and to fill all righteousness, and he blesses all waters, including the waters that were a part of our own baptism, so that it would be holy for us as well. He blesses all marriages just by being at the wedding at Cana and and uh, providing good wine for them. And he blesses, and, and this is maybe the most important thing, he blesses even our graves, so that Jesus has gone into the grave and he's come back out, and so that we know that our graves are in fact a holy place for us while we await the return of the Lord. And though the devil drives the Lord himself into the grave, the Lord is powerful enough to come back out. And importantly for this then, he's powerful enough even to bring you back out so that your time in the grave is just like his time in the grave. And so whether it be changing water into wine or healing diseases or blessing your grave or raising you to eternity on the last day, the Lord is always, always working for you and working out all things for good for you who love him. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to Double-Edged Sword. If you appreciate the channel, please consider supporting it by going over to my Patreon page, which you can find linked in the description. You can also find other content on the YouTube channel. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.